0: Warhammer fantasy news, hobby, lore, and more. Welcome to the Wargames Orchard with Nathan and GJ. It's a classic tale. Elf boy meets elf girl. Elf boy falls in love with elf girl. Elf girl gives birth to twin sons who grow up attempting to kill one another. Well, that escalated quickly the podcast that can make even gods cry. This is the Wargames Orchard. Welcome to the show, my name is GJ and today we will take a look at the fifth and final of the Warhammer Fantasy 5th edition campaign packs, The Tears of Aisha. If you have listened to the previous four Campaigns of Legends episodes, you will by now know that I will be flying solo, and that we use these episodes as filler so we can keep to our weekly podcasting schedule in these busy times. Because we don't yet know when this will air, we will skip over news and hobby and dive right into the main topic for today. As always before we discuss the scenarios in this campaign booklet, we will take a brief look at the setting. Tears of Aisha pits High Elves against Dark Elves in the northern reaches of Nagarite, the province of Ultuan, where the Dark Elves originated. Nagarite is at this point a no-man's land and contested by both the Witch King and the Phoenix King. They both want to lay claim to this area. Lord Melanar of House Corath and his son Kaladin have managed to gain a foothold there. They won the trust of the Shadow Warriors, and together they have reclaimed Northern Nagarite. The Dark Elf infiltrators have resisted them every step of the way, but the High Elves proved too strong. Now the Witch King wants these intruders gone from his ancestral lands. And there are a couple of lovely tales in this campaign booklet, one of which I will read out to you now. One of the oldest legends in the Elven Kingdom is the Tale of the Tears of Aisha. It is said that back at the beginning of time, when the first Elves were born to Aisha the Earth Mother and Kernus, the Lord of Beasts, Asurion, the Lord of the Elven Gods, passed judgement upon their children. He decreed that the Elves were to have prodigiously long lives, but in the end would grow weary of the world and die. Otherwise, said Assyrian wisely, they might begin to covet the thrones of the gods themselves. But the goddess Aisha, who loved her children above all others, wept great tears of sorrow for their fate. Vol, the maker, the elven god of smiths, felt pity for Aisha and her children and took her gleaming tears to his forge where he fashioned them into shining gems. Then with the blessing of Liliath, the mistress of magic, He changed them so that Aisha could watch and communicate with her children when they gazed at the gems. The power of the goddess Aisha is reflected in her tears. Some of them can be used to heal, whilst others may be used to cast powerful enchantments that grant their bearers great wisdom and knowledge. Elven legends say that there were 12 of these jewels called Quill Isha or the Tears of Aisha. Though some say there were only seven, and others claim their number is two score. One of the tiers is rumored to be guarded by the Swordmasters masters in the great spire of the Tower of Hoth. There, the High Lore master is said to use it for communicating with the goddess. One is thought to be hidden in the Gaian Vale, watched over by the oracles of the Ever Queen. The Wood Elves of Loran are said to keep another of the Tears hidden inside the Oak of Ages, and two of the jewels are held by House Gorath, embedded in the twin rune swords made by Vol. Other Tears of Aisha have peaceful and protective powers, but these two were marked with the runes of Dominion. Whoever held both of them could command loyalty from all around him. These blades were used in the Forgotten Wars when the very gods fought against each other. These warriors fought alongside the gods and performed great deeds with the help of the Tears of Aisha. Now this little story continues on for a little bit about the blades and about how they have tremendous spiritual importance to all the elves, including the Dark Elves, and that the Dark Elves also seek way to communicate with Cain, their bloody, uh, bloody-handed bloody god. Um, the legions of the Witch-King are waiting for an opportunity to capture any of the tears of Aisha and it is because the tears are kept in these secret places safe from the black talons of the witch king um, that he has not got them yet now these two swords will feature heavily in the campaign setting and in the story that we are about to embark on now you also know where the the title of the campaign um, derives its name from the Tears of Aisha, these are these jewels set in two swords. And these two swords were held by the, um, the House of Corath, uh, the High Elf House of Corath. Now like the other four campaign packs, we only have very sparse information about when these events took place. There's a small prologue and that takes place in the 250th year of Finubar the Seafarer, the 11th and current Phoenix King. And yes, we do disregard the end times here. In this year he decided that the High Elves would try to take back Nagarai. And this 250th year of his reign translates to the year 2413 in the Imperial Calendar or a little bit over a century before the present day. In this prologue melinar of house Korate brings his two ancestral swords and starts this campaign in the following years melinar then later gets two sons caldor and caledon and the oracles of the gaian Vale. i hope i pronounced this right i'm not an elf player from the very start so i might mispronounce all these names but these oracles, they prophesied that neither of the twin would die until they died at the hands of each other. Or until one died at the hands of the other. That, Lord Melanor thought, would surely never happen. In time, each got one of the swords with a tear of Aisha, and there they diverged parts. Keldor became a hunter and a warrior, and Kaladin went to train as a mage. When the time came, Melinar appointed Kaladin as the heir of House Coraid because he as a wizard was deemed the wiser of the two. Keldor was outraged. Why should his brother, who was away in slavery all the time, be chosen rather than he who was such a fierce warrior and who had protected their holdings for all those years? Keldor became more and more bitter and hateful towards his brother and several of the nobles... Uh, they they followed him, they had his back. Soon Keldor's anger grew so strong and on a dark and stormy night he boarded a small vessel with his followers. He claimed to have heard rumor of a dark elf raiding party and that he was going to head them off. But Keldor did not return and after a week he was presumed dead. Everybody mourned but Kaleiden, his brother, mourned him most of all. Kaldor was of course not dead. He had sailed to Nagarond, he made landfall near Carondgar and he went to that city where it so happened that Malekith, the Witch-King, was also visiting. Keldor was brought before the Witch-King, told his tale and he made a deal. Caldor would offer his knowledge of House Corath in exchange for dominion over the Shadowlands under the Witch-King. Cawdor was sent to be trained as a Dark Elf noble for 50 years, in which time he became a true Dark Elf. Now it was the time to take back Nagarite from his brother. He took the Black Ark Harbinger of Pain and he sailed back to Ulthuan. And is at this point I want to read out another snippet of from the campaign booklet. From atop the command bridge of the Black Ark Harbinger of Pain, Calder surveyed the coastline of Nagarite with cold, calculating eyes. He had made his plans carefully, considering every possibility. He had been diligent in his studies, careful in his preparations. He had mastered the twelve movements of the poisoned sword that the Dark Elf's master assassin had taught him. He had learned the tactics of Hotek, Gramoth and other great Dark Elf generals of the past. He had handpicked his men from amongst the best and most resourceful of the Nagarothi. Now he was ready. The Black Ark under his command was filled with an entire legion of the Witch-King's troops. The Corsairs were practicing on the decks below, juggling their swords and axes, whilst the elites of the city guard of geront drilled, practicing the formations that would bring death to their enemies. Manic witch elves, the brides of Gain, sharpened their deadly poison swords, and on the lowest decks the cold ones grew restless in their cramped surroundings. Soon the dark elf nobles would mount and ride them into battle against their hated high elf cousins. The thought of his former kinsmen made Kaldor seethe with rage. Even after all these years, he, his hatred was as fresh as on the day when his imbecile father had declared his weakling brother the lord of house Koraeth. It should have been he, Kaldor, who had been, who should have been chosen instead. He had bled for the people of his land. He had fought battles against dark elf infiltrators. The terrifying Chimera had roamed the plains, killing its inhabitants, but Kaldor had hunted it down and slain it. He had deserved the dominion of House Gorath, but no, his feeble brother, who had spent his time studying poetry while he had defended the holdings of their house with his life, had returned. His father, impressed with the nonsense of Calaydon, had been fooled into thinking that this top this fop from Hoeth could do a better job at governing their lands. Goldor, who had given everything for his family, had been left with nothing. But now his time of reckoning was at hand. All that was needed was a fast and decisive war... ...which should leave him as the undisputed master of the Shadowlands. Caldor, the Shadow King. Yes, it sounded perfect and with his brother gone and no one left to defy him... ...Caldor planned to rule the Shadowlands for a thousand years. The Harbinger of pain, protected by evil spells, sailed through the waters of the Great Ocean... Like a titanic black mountain bristling with steel, it was protected from the gaze of high-off warships by the impenetrable mists conjured by the dark sorcerers. A thousand slaves had been sacrificed to foul the magic. But this was a minor cost, a mere detail. What did matter? What did it matter in the greater scheme of things? All that mattered was the dominion over the shadowlands. The keen eyes of Kaldor surveyed the bleak shores. Through though its loneliness was great, the land had a savage beauty. Shadowlands, thought Kaldor. Here the wars of the sundering had been fought. Here the ruins of Anlak, the proud capital that had been unjustly raised by Deathless, its inhabitants, both young and old put to the sword. Here had been the site of the original throne of the phoenix kings before the sea had drowned most of Nagarai. Countless warriors had died struggling for supremacy over this land. Many more would die before the day was over. But Kaldor was determined to bring this war to an end. My land by right, he thought. I have fought for possession of this domain before and I shall do so again. Lord Kaldor! called the voice of the captain Morathor. Everything is ready. We shall make landfall as soon as the sky grows dark. The moment approaches, thought Kaldor. Now the darkness shall fall and never leave again. Truly the Shadowlands are aptly named. This story leads us to the first scenario, called The Blooded Shores. Though we cannot say for certain in which year the Harbinger of pain arrives at Ulthuan, we do know that it was at least 50 years plus the time it took for the brothers to grow up. I assume that it was several decades, but I must confess, I don't know too much about the elven races and their lifespans and stuff like that. So uh, this is just me guessing. However, if that guess is correct, that would put these events somewhere in the last half century before the present date. Kaldor's plan was to send out small forces to draw attention away from the main force and then to regroup and destroy the beacon of Marath so it could no longer guide the elf ships plying the northern seas. The captain of the Black Ark, Mortaror, leads this raiding party, but they are met by the high elf resistance from Kalendar, and Kalendar is a veteran who recognized the diversionary tactics, and he mustered his troops at the Beacon. Now to my knowledge, no special miniatures were released or designed for this uh, campaign pack, or or designated from existing miniatures. So you would have to use a generic High Elf and Dark Elf heroes to represent them. Now it doesn't specifically say which High Elf book to use, Uh, there are two, one for 4th edition one for 5th edition, But I assume this campaign uses the 5th edition book, Uh, since that one was released in 1997 and this campaign is from 1998. So I assume GW wants you to use the latest book, uh, which is in this case the 5th edition book. However, if you were to play this with other editions, I think you still can. For this first scenario, we get a uh, description of the battlefield. The deployment zones are along the long edge, 12 inches away from the short edges on both sides and 12 inches inwards. In the middle of the Elf deployment zone, if the high Elf deployment zone I should say, um, which is on the southern end of the board. There is a hill with the beacon on it. That is one of the paper models that was supplied by this campaign pack. Furthermore, you will need a wood, a couple of hills, one of which is half in the deployment zone of the Dark Elves. And two areas of rock, um, they all separate the two Elven factions. The High Elves need to deploy first and then the Dark Elves get the first turn. The game lasts for 5 turns unless the Sudden Death Victory Conditions are met. And the Sudden Death Victory Condition is that if the beacon is destroyed, the Dark Elves win at the end of that turn. And if they don't destroy the beacon, You count victory points and the High Elves win in the case of a draw. If the High Elves win, uh, you can use the beacon to guide ships' reinforcements to the Shadowlands. And you can have Lord and Seaguard and you can also have up to two Tyrannock chariots uh, that have been patrolling the coastline in the final battle. However, if you lose this battle as High Elf player, then you do not get access to those units. Now the beacon to destroy it, it has a toughness of 6 and 10 wounds. And it can be attacked by uh, shooting, by magic spells that have a strength value. And you can destroy it in hand-to-hand combat. For this scenario, you get two battle scrolls. One for the Dark Elves, the Black Ark Reavers, and one for the High Elves. And as you will see with the battle scrolls for uh, these battles, for these uh, first three scenarios of this campaign they have a special rule where you can include up to 500 points of reinforcements and those reinforcements, they can be chosen either from a select list or from a list that's already available to you. However, the cost of these reinforcements will be deduced from the points. Total uh, will be deducted. I should say from the points total for the final battle. So, your final battle you will have a force of 3500 points for both the high elves and the dark elves should you use say a thousand points over those three battles then you can only have a 2500 point army in your final battle the dark elf force consists of 1250 points plus up to 500 points of reinforcements if you decide to use them your army is led by Mortharor and Mortharor is a hi- uh, a dark elf hero. He has a movement of five, web skill six, ballistic skill six, strength and toughness four, two wounds, initiative eight, three attacks, and leadership of nine. Um, he is a, a captain of the Black Ark Corsairs. He costs one hundred ninety nine points. He's equipped with a hand weapon and the Sea Dragon Cloak, which gives him a five plus unmodified save. As a magic item, he has the Dragon's Claw, which is a razor sharp dragon's claw that he can use in combat. The claw can rip any armor apart. It gives him a plus one strength bonus and an extra minus three armor save penalty in hand to hand combat. So that would make his total minus a uh, total armor save penalty a minus 5. He is strength 4 that is up to 5 and then you get an additional minus 3 armor save and furthermore this item causes d3 wounds so he's a real can opener his special rules are that he is cruel. Morthoror's cruelty is legendary even amongst his own kind and the Dark Elves are the cruelest of all the inhabitants of the Warhammer world a unit suffering casualties caused by Morthoror must make an immediate panic test so terrible is death at his hands. Apart from this uh, lovely chap, you get to use 0-1 to one Dark Elf Sorcerers. They are magic level 1. He can use dark magic and he may be on foot or ride a dark steed. He can carry a single item up to 50 points. You can have for your units a champion, one champion for each unit and the champion can have one magic item worth up to 25 points. For your regiments you can choose 0-1 to units of One Riders, 0-1 War Hydra, 0-1 unit of Dark Elf Scouts, any number of units of Black Ark Corsairs, one of which may carry a magic standard up to 25 points. You may include any number of units of Dark Elf Warriors and any number of units of Crossbowmen. And your reinforcements, they may be chosen from any of these units listed here on this battle scroll. The High Elf Force is a little bit larger, consists of 1500 points and you can also use up to 500 points of reinforcements if you should wish to do so. The Elves are led by Kalendar, the... um, High Elf Veteran. And Kalendar, he is a High Elf Hero. He has the stat line of a High Elf Hero plus an extra leadership point. So he's Movement 5, Web Skill, Ballistic Skill 6, Strength and Toughness 4, 2 Wounds, Initiative 8, 3 Attacks and Leadership of 10. He is the General of the Defenders of the Beacon and he costs 185 points. He's equipped with a Hand Weapon, Heavy Ithilmar Armor, a Shield and a Spear this um it says here that he has a 2 plus save for heavy armor shield and a barted steed, but it it does not say further in this battle scroll that he is mounted nor does it give you the profile for his steed so i assume that is a typo there are several typos in these battle scrolls that i have uh, found during these campaign pack reviews Kalendar has a single magic item, which is the Spear of the Shores. This is the heirloom of Kalendar's family. It gives him plus two attacks in hand-to-hand combat, and he gets a plus one bonus to his strength, so that will make him strength five and five attacks. Also pretty decent for an elven hero. Apart from Kalendar, you can have also zero to one mage, magic level one, that can use high magic. It is either on foot or ride right an elven steed, and he can have a single magic item worth up to 50 points. And you may choose a champion for each of your units, and each champion can have a magic item with a value up to 25 points. The regiments you can include are 0 to 1 units of silver helms, one of which—well, there's only one—but this unit it can have a magic standard up to 50 points. You can have 0 to 3 units of shadow warriors. Any number of Illyrian Reavers, High Elf Spearmen, and High Elf Archers. And your reinforcements, you can choose them from a different list. They can either be 0-1 to Tyrannoch Chariots or any number... um, Well, no, it is also another typo. It says you're just Shadow Warriors, but then it says in the text that you may include one unit of Shadow Warriors. So in total, you can have up to four units of Shadow Warriors, I guess. The uh, historical result, historical outcome of this battle was that the dark elves managed to destroy the beacon using their war hydra and while well, the high elves uh, that remained there they fled and it did not grant any reinforcements uh, in the form of London Seaguard for the final battle. Then we move on to the second scenario. It's called the Battle of Shadows. The Shadow Warriors have time and again foiled the Witch King's attempts to take back Naggaroth. Caldor knew that he had to take them out before they could warn his brother and rob him of the element of surprise. Therefore, Caldor sent Kaldat the Black, the master assassin of Caron's Car, with a force of assassins, scouts and dark riders to the hills of Ardran. Ad- Ardran? Adran. Well, to those hills. Unfortunately for Kaldor, there were some great eagles that spotted him and they warned the Shadow Warriors of his coming at the very last minute. The Shadow Warriors camp was already surrounded, but the Shadow Warriors led by Alatar were ready to defend themselves. This is a uh, unusual setup for a battlefield in that the high elves deploy in a circle with a radius of eight inch, which uh, the center of which is the exact center of the battlefield. And the dark elves they deploy uh, they deploy along the western edge, the short edge, and along the northern and southern edges up to eight uh, no sorry up to twelve inch from the eastern edge. Their deployment zone is eight inches deep. Between the two deployment zones are trees, the Dark Elves are coming out of the forest, and the unoccupied short edge, the eastern edge, is the High Elves' escape route. The High Elves deploy first, they get no special deployment rules for scouts and stuff like that, and then the Dark Elves, they get the first turn. The game lasts for 5 turns, and unless a single uh, site is completely wiped out, after 5 turns you count victory points. High Elves they gain one victory point for each unit that exits the Eastern table edge and the Dark Elves win in case of a draw. Now in case you're not familiar with fifth edition um you th- might think that a single victory point is not worth much, but in fifth edition you would gain one victory points for, uh, for example, every 100 points of troops that you managed to kill. So, you should basically multiply those 5th edition victory points by 100. So each unit, if we uh, think of this in 6th, 7th or 8th edition terms, each unit moving off the board gives you an extra 100 victory points. Uh, Should the victory points result in a draw, then the Dark Elves win this battle. If the Dark Elves wipe out all the Shadow Warriors, the High Elves... Player does not have access to any shadow warriors in the final battle. However, for each shadow warrior that escapes, you get to do D3 strength the D3 strength 3 hits to one Dark Elf unit after deployment in the final battle. And this is because these um, shadow warriors that escape, they immediately turn around and start ambushing the Dark Elves, setting traps, so they whittle away those units a little bit um, the special rule for the scenario is that non-fleeing high elf forces can leave the eastern table edge just giving you those victory points and those uh, much needed uh, traps and access to shadow warriors in the final battle and for the two forces we turn again to the battle scrolls the high elf battle scroll the guardians of the shadowlands they get 1000 points and you can have another 500 points of reinforcement in the same way as i mentioned before these high elves are led by Elathar, the prince of shadows he is a high elf hero he costs 150 points he's got a movement of 5 web skill and ballistic skill 6 strength and toughness 4 2 wounds initiative 8 Attacks and a leadership of 9, so he's a regular high elf hero. He's got a hand weapon, light armor, a shield, and the jade bow, and he is on foot, giving him a 5 plus save in total. The jade bow, his magic item, is a potent magical weapon. It has a strength of 4 and a range of 30 inches. You roll to hit and to wound as normal, but if you kill your target, you are allowed to shoot again immediately. Continue until you fail to kill your target or there are no targets within range so the high elves for this scenario have a machine gun bow the special rules that Alatar has are hate dark elves Uh, like all other shadow warriors he hates dark elves infiltration he is allowed to deploy after the enemy has placed all his units on the table he can be set up anywhere outside of his opponent's deployment area as long as he remains out of sight of the enemy If both armies include troops with special deployment abilities, both players roll a d6 and the lowest scorer sets up his unit first. Note that Alatar may not use this ability in this scenario too, but he may use it in the final battle if he survives and is included in the army. So you get a scouting hero with a 30-inch machine gun bow. And his final special rule is Blade Dancer. He has a unique style of fighting. He is so agile and quick that he may dodge hand-to-hand combat blows. To represent this, Alator is allowed to make an extra 4 plus save against wounds inflicted in hand-to-hand combat. No modifiers apply. But this would be a 4 plus ward save if we put it in later era terms. Now apart from alatar, you can have champions for your units. Each can have a magic item worth up to 25 points. And for your regiments, you can select 0-1 units of Illyrian Reavers. You can have 0-5 to 5 units of Shadow Warriors, 0-3 to 3 Great Eagles and 0-5 to 5 units of Archers. For your reinforcements 500 points you can choose 0-1 units of Illyrian Reavers and 0-1 units of Swordmasters. The Dark Elf Force is led by an Assassin Hero and there are no Assassin Heroes in the 4th edition Dark Elf book so they just made one. Keldad the Black is the general, he costs 155 points, he's got a movement of 5, web skill and ballistic skill of 9, strength toughness 4, 2 wounds initiative 10, 3 attacks and a leadership of 10. Quite a stat line but uh, you have to keep in mind that this is the stat line of a regular dark elf assassin except that the regular dark elf assassin only has one wound and two attacks so he's got an extra wound and an extra attack compared to those uh, regular assassins so basically making him into a hero level assassin he is equipped with a repeater crossbow and 2 Poisoned Swords, uh, which cause d3 wounds. Kaldath has no armor save, but he can dodge blows on a 4+, and that's one of his special rules. He is one of the greatest assassins um, that Karantkar have ever had. His inhuman swiftness and lightning reflexes allow him to dodge any wound caused by shooting or in hand-to-hand combat, On a d6 roll of 4+, so also giving him a 4+, ward save against uh, shooting and close combat, not just against close combat. Keldad has one more special rule, which is arrogance. His arrogance is legendary and it knows no bounds. He is always ready to accept any challenge to personal combat made by an opponent. This is his favorite style of fighting, so he will gain plus 1 on all of his to-hit rolls. So get this guy into a challenge apart from Cal that you can have uh, a champion for each of your units which can have a magic item worth up to 25 points you can have also zero to four assassins each of which can have a magic item up to 25 points for your regiments you can select zero to one units of dark riders zero to one units of harpies and 0 to 1 units of Witch Elves, and those Witch Elves can have a magic standard up to 50 points. Furthermore, you can have any number of units of Dark Elf Scouts, Dark Elf Warriors, and Dark Elf Crossbowmen. And your reinforcements, 500 points, can be chosen from this same list. The total Dark Elf army consists of 1,250 points, and the High Elf army consists of 1,000 points. I don't know if I mentioned that. So the balance is this time tipped in favor of the Dark Elves by 250 points. The historical result of this battle is that the Dark Elves won, but several of the Shadow Warriors escaped, wreaking havoc on the Dark elf supply lines and uh, setting traps and doing all kinds of nasty stuff that you know and love the Shadow Warriors for. Scenario 3 is the defense of Eagle Pass. The main Dark Elf force marched over the Plains of Twilight towards the Annuli Mountains while the scout made diversionary attacks to draw away High Elf patrols. Keldor went straight towards the hidden mansion of House Corath, where his brother was mustering forces. To get to the mansion he needed to find the hidden pass and open the magically sealed gates and that's where his knowledge came into play. He still knew the secret password and this is of course the reason why you should regularly change your passwords and not wait for 50 years. Saying the password opened up the way to the pass and the pass was heavily defended. So what Kaldor did is he sent his fastest shock troops to try to overrun the defenses. In rallying the Steadfast, the captain of the Eagle Pass garrison knew that he could not retreat without giving up his lord and his own family. He had to make a last stand. He sent out a warning and then prepared a shield wall across the entire pass. The dark elf force was twice as strong, but they would hold as long as they could, buying time for their families to escape and for their comrades to prepare. This battle is fought also on a regular rectangular battlefield. Along the southern edge is the high elf deployment zone. It's 12 inches uh, deep and you have to stay 12 inches away from the short edges. Uh, This is mirrored on the north side for the dark elf deployment zone and along the short edges, the east and west edges are impassable cliffs. There are a couple of fields of boulders between the two deployment zones, and two more fields of boulders or two walls or other obstacles are in the high elf deployment zone, each 12 inches from the center and tw- uh, 8 inches from the table edge. Uh, these are the defensive positions that um what was his name again in Rally and managed to set up quickly. The dark elves deploy first because the high elves see them coming up the pass, and the high elves then get the first turn. The battle will not last for a set number of turns but it will last until there are no unbroken high elf units left. Even if the high elves survive the main force of Keldor will eventually push through and kill the survivors so even if the dark high elves manage to defeat the dark elves the people in the past will still die. The only victory condition is if all the high elves are either killed or fleeing and The reason why this is, is because the longer the High Elves manage to defend the pass, the better the victory gains will be. If the High Elves manage to guard the pass for less than 5 turns, they will have no benefits in the final battle and the warriors have perished in vain. If the battle lasts for 5 turns, the High Elves doggedly defend the pass long enough for Caledain to prepare an adequate battle line. High Elf player automatically receives the first turn of the game in the final battle. If you manage to hold off the Dark Elf force for 6 turns, then uh, you may shoot with one of your missile armed regiments before the start of the battle in the final scenario, but only after deployment is complete. So you get a free round of shooting for one of your missile troops. And if you get to uh, seven or more turns, then uh, the magnificent efforts of the defenders of Egon Pass will descend into legend. So courageous was their defence that Kaladin had enough time to deploy his troops at leisure. In the final battle, the entire Dark Elf army is deployed before the High Elves. And it does not specifically say so, but I do assume that these are... Um, Uh, cumulative it it does allude to that in the battle scroll for the fourth scenario the defenders of the pass consist of emrelian who is your uh, general here he is a regular high elf hero he costs 144 points he's got a movement of 5 web skill, ballistic skill 6 strength and toughness 4, 2 moons, initiative 8 3 attacks and a leadership of 9. He's got a sword, a shield and a longbow. And he carries the armor of Meteoric Ore which gives him a 1 plus armor save. It's a suit of armor that has been fashioned out of Meteoric Ore as the name suggests. It gives him a 1 plus armor save against any wounds and is modified by saving throw modifiers for high strength in the normal manner. And it cannot be improved by wearing more armor, carrying a shield or stuff like that. So for some reason he has a shield, but that doesn't really do anything. Uh, unless of course this armor gets destroyed and there were items that did that, but I don't know if you can take them for the Dark Elf roster at 25 points for your champions. Uh, his special rule is Iron Will. Such is the will of Umreli and that any unit directly led by him can take their break tests on his leadership score without any modifiers. This means that they can take the test on an unmodified score of 9, regardless of combat results. Apart from Irelian, you can have champions for your units, and each champion can have a magic item up to 25 points. You can have reinforcements, and the reinforcements can be chosen from the list of regiments, also 500 points of reinforcements as usual. And uh, for the record, your high elf force here consists of 1000 points of the high elves uh, and the regiments that you can use are 0 to 1 units of Lord and Seaguard. One and that may have a magic banner worth up to 50 points. You can have 0 to 2 repeater ball throwers. You can have any number of units of spearmen, one of which can have a magic banner up to 50 points. And you can have any number of units of archers. The attackers, the Dark Elves, uh, their battle scroll is called the Brides of Cain. And as mentioned, the Dark Elf Force is twice as strong, so you get 2000 points for the Dark Elves. And of course, you can also have another 500 points of reinforcements, uh, up to 500 points, should you wish to buy them. The reinforcements are bought from the same list as the regular list for the Dark Elves as well. These Dark Elves, the Brides of Cain, are led by Malida the Hag Queen. She is a, a witch elf hero, a regular witch elf hero. She's got a movement of 5, Web skill and ballistic skill of 6, strength and toughness 4, 2 wounds, initiative 8, 3 attacks and leadership of 10. She costs 190 points. She's got 2 hand weapons and light armor, which gives her a 6 plus armor save. Her magic item is Blood Blades. She is armed with 2 magic swords which eternally drip poisoned blood. They have a strength of 5 and cause d3 wounds. And with these lethal blades, Melida may make 1 extra attack because she is fighting with 2 weapons. And so in total, she has 7 attacks when frenzied, which is her special rule. She is frenzy. And in uh, in 5th edition Frenzy you double your attacks, so 3 becomes 6 plus 1 for the extra blades. And her other special rule is that she hates high elves like the rest of her dark elf kin. Melida leads the army. Apart from Melida you can have 0 to 1 witch elf hero, which can be chosen um, with a magic item up to 50 points. Your units can have a champion with a magic item up to 25 points. You have to take at least one unit of witch elves, uh, but you can include more if you wish. You can have 0 to 1 units of gold one knights and it can have a banner of up to 50 points. 0 to 1 units of executioners with a magic banner up to 25 points. Any number of units of dark elf city guards. And uh, the city guards, if I do remember correctly, were one of those combined units where you had a front row of crossbows followed by a, a second row of spears. Uh, you can have zero to one cauldron of blood, the uh, any number of units of dark elf warriors, and any number of units of dark riders. The victory gains for this scenario are um, uh, are what I already mentioned. The, the longer the high elves last, the uh, the more time you get in the second or in the last battle to prepare. And there's another special rule and that is that the High Elves because of their resolve are immune to panic. The historical result is quite as expected. The High Elves died defending the pass. Emrillion killed Melina the Hair Queen but he died as well. And a statue to him was erected in the Hall of Heroes in the Shrine of Asurian. This takes us to the fourth and final scenario, the Battle of Brothers. The messenger from Eagle Pass warns the High Elves as and they prepare for battle. Finally, Lord Kaladin recognizes it's his own brother who has been attacking him. Finally, he knows how the Dark Elves had known where to strike, how they had gotten up the pass so quickly. He swore he would restore his family's honor by slaying his brother. The High Elves knew that they had to win because if they lost, the Dark Elves would hunt down their families who have been fleeing from the village ever since the messenger arrived. Caldor had prepared for this moment for 50 years. He was planning attacks and counter attacks, running scenarios through his head. The battle lines formed and Kaldor signaled the Dark Elves to charge. And I will read a a tiny snippet from the book right at the end of this introduction to the fourth scenario. Thus the scene was set for a bloody battle where no quarter was asked for or given. And in the heavens Aisha, the mother of all elves, wept a single tear for the loss of her children. This battle is fought on a battlefield where the Dark Elves deploy along the northern edge 12 inches inward and 12 inches away from the short edges and the High Elves do the same along the southern edge. The bo- forces are 24 inches apart as, as they are uh, in basically all of the scenarios except for the second one. There are two hills and they are... Uh, no, I, I should say this uh, correctly, at least it in the... In the, in the map section, it's depicted as two hills on each side of the dark of deployment zone, but you can probably have one large hill and have the same effect. These hills extend into the dark of deployment zone. Along the western edge is a forest uh, that creeps up towards the center, and there's a watchtower. And in the high of deployment zone is the mansion. And these are both paper models that came with the Tears of Aisha box set. Across from the forest and uh, on the other side of the battlefield, touching the northeastern corner of the High Elf deployment zone is a field of boulders. Up to 20 archers can be deployed inside the mansion and they can fire in all directions. They benefit from hard cover. Now if the High Elves held out for 7 turns, the Dark Elves have to deploy first and if they did not, the Dark Elves uh, start with 1 unit and then the High Elves do 1 unit and then you... Um, go back and forth until all units have been deployed. The first one to finish deploying may use any of these remaining uh, drops in, in quotes to move one of his units up to 4 inches but no closer than 8 inches to the enemy as we have also seen in other scenarios, in other campaign packs. There are no special deployment rules for scouts and, so, and that's, uh, those kinds of troops they have to be deployed as uh, regular troops. And if the defenders held out for less than 5 turns, uh, in the book it says 3 is another one of those errors, the high elves go first. If they did not, then you have to uh, roll off to see who goes first as normal. The game will last for 6 turns or until the special victory conditions are met. And these victory conditions are if one of the two sides, one of the two armies, Uh, ...gets possession of both of these swords with the Tears of Aisha... ...that player will win at the end of the turn. Now the only way that this can happen... ...is if one of the brothers slays the other brother in single combat. If this does not happen... ...then you resort to victory points... ...and the high elves win in the case of a draw. Do you remember that prophecy that we mentioned at the very beginning... Well, that's a special rule for these characters, because Kaladin and Kaldor can only die at the hands of the other. So, the only way for this uh, battle to end, for the general to die, is if the two main characters end up in single combat. If the High Elves win, the Black Ark will retreat and more High Elf troops and Shadow Warriors can rush in to defend Nagarith. If the Dark Elves win, the Black Ark will land and it will become a permanent fortress and an outpost for the Dark Elves so that Malekith finally has a foothold there and that will bode very badly for the High Elves. There are no special rules for this scenario except for the one I just mentioned about the characters. We have the two armies here, and each army consists of thirty-five hundred points. Unless you've already uh, used up some points for reinforcement, then they are deduced from this um, this this roster. For the High Elves, your character is Caladen. He is the Lord of House Corath, and he leads the High Elves as your general. He costs three hundred and forty-one points. He is mounted on an elven steed, and caledon has got a movement of five, a web skill seven, ballistic skill seven, strength and toughness four, three wounds, initiative nine, three attacks, and a leadership of ten. He is a uh, regular dark, uh, uh, sorry, a regular elven general, regular high elf general, except that he has one less attack than an elven general normally would. He's mounted on a regular elven steed so his movement of 5 is actually 9. He is armed with a hand weapon and he only rides his elven steed so his um save is a 5 plus. His magic item is Death Singer which is the um uh the magic weapon the uh the one with the tear of Aisha uh, the other one the one carried by the dark elves is uh, Doom Singer. So, Dead Singer, the Twin Blade of Doom Singer, at the beginning of each hand to hand combat phase, roll a d3. You may add the result to your strength, weapon skill, or attacks. So, you can, um, yeah, just. Uh, I don't think you really need to boost the weapon skill of 7, especially not in a normal fight. But giving him some extra attacks at strength 4 or maybe upping those attacks if you're fighting something big like a Hydra could really work. Kaladin is well versed in the ways of sorcery and he is a level 2 wizard who uses high magic. He's got the special rule Blade Master. He is one of the most gifted pupils of the Swordmasters of Hoth, which means he has an extra 4 plus special save, an extra 4 plus ward save in hand-to-hand combat to represent his unmatched ability to block sword strikes. Another special rule he has is Wrathful. As soon as Kaladin saw his brother leading the Dark Elf army, he realized how the Dark Elves had managed to cause so much grief. He has made an oath to purge his family name by slaying his brother or perish in the attempt. If Kaladin is in combat with his brother Kaldor, he will get plus two strength off his hits. If possible, Kaladin will always challenge Kaldor to single combat. And the final special rule, the one I already mentioned, is called Destiny. As the prophecy of the oracles of Isha revealed, Kaladin can only perish in battle if he is slain by his brother. To represent this, he may never lose his last wound or be slain by spells or magic items. The only exception is if he is in combat with Kaldor, in which case he may be slain as normal. He may be broken in battle and caught in pursuit by another enemy, but is considered to be badly wounded rather than killed. In this case, he is removed as a casualty and victory points are rewarded as if he was slain. So, for your army, you can select, as usual for these um, battles, a whole lot of characters that we have already seen in previous battles. You can have Kalendar, but only if he survived the first battle and if the high elves were victorious. You can have Alatar, but only if he survived the second battle. You do not need to win this battle if you want to use Alathar, it is sufficient that he survived, so that's a nice exception to the rules. You can have 0 to 1 level 3 mage. He's the advisor of Lord Kaleiden, he lo- uses high magic, and he may have one magic item worth up to 50 points, he may either be on foot or ride an elven steed. You can have 0 to 1 battle standard bearers. He can have a magic banner worth up to 100 points. And he may be on foot or in an elven chariot or on an elven steed. You can have other heroes chosen from the high elf list. And each hero may have a magic item worth up to 50 points. They may ride elven steeds. And as usual your units can have a champion equipped as the rest of the unit. And each champion can have a magic item up to 25 points. For your regiments, you may select 0 to 1 units of Swordmasters that can have a magic standard up to 50 points. You may have any no- number of units of Silver Helms and one of which may have a magic banner up to 50 points. 0 to 1 units of Dragon Princes with a magic standard up to 75 points. You can have 0 to 1 units of White Lions which can have a magic banner up to 25 points. 0 to 3 units of shadow warriors but only if at least one shadow warrior unit survived the second battle. So you need to have at least one unbroken shadow warrior running off the the east uh, eastern table edge or, or holding out until the number of turns run out. You can have um 0 to 3 repeater bolt throwers, 0 to 2 tiranoc chariots only if you won the first battle. Any number of units of Illyrian Reavers, any number of units of Lord and Seaguard if you won the first battle, any number of units of Spearmen and Archers. For the Dark Elf roster, your general is Keldor. and Kaldor is also a. Uh, he's got the stat line of an Elven General, but instead of losing one attack as his brother did he gained one weapon skill compared to the regular elven general he costs 230 points he's got a movement of five weapon skill eight ballistic skill of seven strength and toughness of four three wounds initiative nine four attacks and leadership 10. he is also mounted on a steed on a dark steed so that movement of five of his is also in effect nine He's got a sword, heavy armor, and shield, and he rides a dark steed, giving him a 3 plus armor save. His magic item is Doomsinger, the Twin of Death Singer. It is decorated with one of the jewels called the Tears of Aisha. At the beginning of each hand-to-hand combat phase roll a D3, and just as his brother, you may add the result to your strength, weapon skill, or attacks. And with a weapon skill of 8, I see even less value of adding the, strength, of adding the bonus to your weapon skill. Um, and uh, since he's already got one attack more than his brother, I think you want to go for, for strength here. Um, although, well, maybe attacks is even better if they're in single combat because of that 4 plus uh, ward saving combat. Anyway, um, let me know what you did when you field them. He's got some special rules. Bitter hatred. Kaldor truly hates his high elf kinsman for robbing him of his hereditary title and lands. He hates all high elves, but this does not prevent him re-rolling all missed hits at the beginning of any hand combat phase, and uh, not just at the beginning of the first one as normal. So it is a little bit, worded, a little bit um, silly, but it basically is is the rule that they can that he can always re-roll all missed hits at the beginning of any hand-to-hand combat phase if I interpret this correctly. Such is the hatred Keldorf feels towards his brother that he will always accept a challenge of single combat against him and he will always issue if Galadin does not. So uh, both brothers have to issue a challenge against each other. And he's also got the same rule destiny Which says that he can only lose his last wound to his brother and the same thing with if he flees off or is caught then you get his victory points. But he is considered to be just badly wounded. As a famous character dressed in black armor once said, it's only a flesh wound. Apart from Kaldor, you can have 0 to 1 Master Sorcerers and a Master Sorcerer is the level 3 wizard. Uh, he can have a magic banner uh, sorry magic banner not a magic banner a magic item worth up to 50 points he can be on foot on a dark steed or on a cold one you can have 0 to 4 assassins but only if you were victorious in your second battle any assassin may have a magic item up to 25 points you can include a morath um, mortharor sorry i'm messing up all these elven names today uh, mortharor the um uh the ship's captain if he survived the first scenario and the Dark Elves were victorious. You can have other heroes um, if you won the first scenario and if you did not win the first scenario you are limited to one additional hero. Each hero may be given a magic item up to 50 points and the heroes may be on foot, on a dark steel or on a cold one. You may include Keldad the Black, the Master Assassin in your army if he survived the second scenario. And if the Dark Elves were victorious, you may include Melida in your army, but only if she survived the third battle. And the Dark Elves were victorious, and you can have a battle standard bearer carrying the personal banner of Kaldor. Uh, it has it, this was actually described. It has the device of the Black Sea Dragon on it. It was also the way how Kaladin recognized that it was his brother that, who he was up against. The banner may be a magical standard up to 100 points and the battle standard bear may be on foot, on a dark steed or on a cold one. You can have a champion for each unit in your army and the champion can have a magic item worth up to 25 points. Moving on to regiments, you can have 0 to 1 units of executionists and they can have a magic banner up to 50 points. The same for the unit of blackguards, 0 to 1 and a magic banner up to 50 points. You can have up to 1 units of Harpies, you can have up to 3 War Hydras, up to 3 Repeater Ball Throwers. You can have 0 to 1 units of Gold 1 Knights with a Magic Banner up to 75 points. And you can have any number of units of the following, Dark Riders, Witch Elves, one of which may have a Magic Banner up to 50 points, Black Ark Corsairs, Dark Elf Warriors, Dark Elf Crossbowmen and Dark Elf City Guards. Now the historical result for this battle is that Kaleiden managed to kill his brother Keldor. He takes his sword and uh, he secures the lands for the High Elves. Thus we come to the end of the Tears of Aisha campaign and what a sad story that was. I find there's always something deeply tragic about these wars between High Elves and Dark Elves. Um so so much needless violence after the sundering after the split that, that wasn't even really necessary if you ask me because there are so many other races for them to fight if they would have stayed together uh, yet they keep making each other's lives miserable but well uh, that's part of the game i guess now if you want to play this campaign but you don't own a dark elf army and if you don't then you will probably make Nathan very sad, because he loves Dark Elves. Uh, still if you don't, then the campaign booklet will give you some options to fight this battle, the series of battles, with uh, Lizardmen versus uh, High Elves and Empire versus High Elves. In the first case, the scenario is that the High Elves have established a colony in Lustria, and the Lizardmen want to push them out. And in the second scenario, the high elves have control of the trade routes to Cathay and the empire attack one of their outpost fortresses. So their own ships can sail to Cathay unopposed. And these bones sound like lovely scenarios to play out. Very cool narratives. And, um, well, I think I don't have time in my life to just play all these five campaign packs, let alone do them with alternative armies. Something I might not have mentioned before is that even though you are given lists for these alternative armies of units that you can use, it does not give you uh, characters with special rules. It says you have to make those characters yourself, and I think in fairness you would probably want to make these and um, do so with your opponent's permission uh, so that you and your opponent both know what you are up against and what you have made. Well that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed a little walk down nostalgia lane with these five campaign packs. Please let us know which one is your favorite. Have you ever played one? Or have you maybe played them all? Are you planning on playing them in the near future? For example this upcoming summer. If you were to design one of these campaign packs which forces would you like to see most? I have some ideas for that, and uh, well, I always love Undead, but there are some forces that are still misrepresented here. We don't have, for example, Chaos, we don't have Skaven, we don't have Lizardman. Um, Lizardman versus Skaven would be a very nice one, uh, Clan Pestilence themed. I know they did that later with the Conquest of the New World, but uh, yeah, there's still some, some options here for us. Anyway, I would love to hear from you. Uh, also how you enjoyed these episodes that's it for now until next time have a great week thanks for listening you can connect with us on instagram or email us at wargamesorchard at gmail.com and don't forget to join us on facebook at the warhammer orchard time of mortals has come to an end.